Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as personalized recommendations or fiduciary advice. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for any investment, accounting, legal, and tax advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today is August 14th, and this is the Northbound Wealth Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. For those of you who are new, thank you. And uh, for those of you who listen on a weekly basis, like and subscribe, share it with your friends. This is the Weekly Market Insights Positive inflation data failed to lift stocks from their August doldrums last week as economic data and ratings downgrade soured investor sentiment. Dow Jones Industrial Average added 0.62%, while the S&P 500 slipped 0.31%. The NASDAQ Composite Index fell 1.90% for the week. The MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, rose 0.50%. So what does that mean for the Dow? The Dow closed last week at 35,281. That's up 6.44% for the year. NASDAQ closed at 13,644. That's up 30.37% for the year. By far one of the best performing asset classes or the tech stocks. The NASDAQ has a, has the top tech companies in the United States, basically in the world. Uh, MSCI EFA index closed at 2153. That's up 10.80%. For the year, S&P 500 closed at 4,464 and change. That's up 16.27% for the year. Not a bad year through August 14th. So uh, here we go. We got the 10-year note at 4.16%. Year to date, that's just slightly up 0.28%. A 10-year note above four is very interesting. Usually when that happens, we get a correction. So keep that in mind. So tech weighs on stocks. So those uh, the tech sector. Stocks struggled last week, beginning on a strong note ahead of key inflation data and selling off midweek in response to a downgrade of the banking sector by credit rating agency Moody's and news of a steep drop in China's exports. Emblematic of the week, stocks jumped to big gains following Thursday's better-than-expected inflation report, only to evaporate as bond yields rose amid an auction of 30-year treasury bonds. Stocks have, uh, they've had difficulty sustaining traction in the loss of the technology's leadership, uh, that tech sector leadership, which has propelled gains this year. The combination of higher yields and earnings that failed to validate tech's elevated valuations has dragged the sector and the larger market down. July's inflation data reflected only moderate price pressures. Consumer prices increased by a modest 0.2%, which aligned with the market expectations. In comparison, the annual inflation rate came in at 3.2%, slightly below consensus estimates, uh, though higher than June's annual increase of 3%. Core CPI, which excludes food and energy, was particularly encouraging rising at the slowest rate since October of 2021. Producer prices painted a more mixed picture, coming in at a bit higher than expected, rising 0.3% versus the expected 0.2% increase, though the year-over-year increase was just 0.8%. Core producer prices, 12-month increase of 2.4%, tied 
for the lowest since January of 2021. So uh, key economic data, Tuesday, retail sales, Wednesday, housing starts, industrial production, FOMC minutes, Thursday, index of leading economic indicators and jobless claims. Companies reporting earnings, we've got Tuesday, the Home Depot, Wednesday, uh, Cisco Systems, Target, and TJX. Thursday, we have Walmart, Applied Materials, and Ross Stores. Friday, we have Palo Alto Networks and John Deere and Company. So that uh, rounds out the week for the notable companies uh, here coming up. So here's our tax tip for the week. Is child support or alimony considered taxable income? Good question. Child support payments are not taxable income for the recipient or tax deductible for the payer. Therefore, you should not include child support payments when calculating gross income for tax purposes. On the other hand, alimony payments may be taxable income for the recipient and tax deductible for the payer, depending on specific divorce separation uh, instructions or instruments for divorce or separation instruments executed on or before December 31st, 2018, alimony payments are generally taxable income for the recipient and tax deductible for the payer. However, for divorce or separation instruments executed after December 31st, 2018, or those executed before that date, but later modified to repeal the deduction for alimony expressly, the payments are neither taxable income or nor tax deductible. Uh, In either case, when determining gross income for tax purposes, alimony payments received should be included or excluded based on the specific instrument. And again, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized tax advice. We suggest you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. And this tip was adapted from irs.gov. All right, on to the next segment. Stay tuned. Hey, here's a, a brief article from uh, Christopher Anstey, Bloomberg News, August 13, 2023. The headline reads, Goldman pencils in first Fed r- rate cut for the second quarter of 2024. So what he's saying here is Goldman Sachs Group uh, economists anticipate the Federal Reserve will start lowering interest rates by the end of next June with a gradual quarterly pace of reductions from that point. So these cuts are in our forecast. Uh, They're driven by this desire to normalize the funds rate from a restrictive level once inflation is closer to target, end quote, basically says Goldman economists uh, uh, Jan Hatzius and David Miracle. Uh, wrote uh, on a note dated yesterday, which was Sunday. For now, the Goldman team is penciling in rate cuts to begin in the second quarter of 2024. The rate setting FOMC com- uh, is expected. The rate setting FOMC or Federal Open Market Committee is expected to skip a hike next month and conclude at the November meeting that the core inflation trend has slowed enough to make a final hike unnecessary. Normalization is not a particularly urgent motivation for cutting, and for that reason, we also see see a significant risk that the FOMC will instead hold steady, the Goldman economists wrote. We are penciling in 25 basis points of cuts per quarter, but are uncertain about the pace. Last week, data showed U.S. inflation rose at a slower-than-expected headline rate of 3.2%, with the core consumer price index, which strips out energy and food costs, 
running at a 4.7% annual pace. Fed policymakers in March 2022 began ramping up their target for the benchmark rate to a range of 5.25% to 5.5%. We expect the funds rate to eventually stabilize at 3 to 3.25%, Goldman's team wrote. Thank you, Bloomberg News, for reporting on that. What's interesting about this uh, rate cut uh, projections and modeling is that um, it, it's all predicated on the assumption that we're going to have uh, that the Fed basically has to cut rates in order to keep the economy going, and that uh, that that pesky inflation number isn't going to stay high, but actually trend down, and it actually is trending down. Um, but you have a really tight labor market, and uh, and to keep things going in the United States, uh, we can't have high inflation, and it's not; it's coming down. But we can't have high interest rates forever. Uh, they do need to kind of come down and normalize a bit. But you know, it's debatable. There's a lot of debate going on there. I think that the shock would be as if the Fed held rates for a longer period of time than what Goldman Sachs is anticipating. Um, and maybe the Fed doesn't cut rates as quick so that uh, it can help stimulate spending and the growth in the economy. Um, they're probably watching the consumer awfully close and how much consumer debt is out there and uh, and looking at uh, wage inflation, which is still trending up. It's interesting uh, with that one. Um, um, here's a comment, though. Uh, since around 1982, the uh, core inflation was around 3.3 or 3.2%. Historical inflation is around that. They have a 2% inflation target. So perhaps this aggressive rate tightening cycle that we've been in is going to help inflation come down a lot faster than people realize. But it's a lag effect that uh, is going to take some time for to work its way through the economy and uh, and so we'll continue to report this data for you, give you some ideas to where things are going. But Goldman Sachs is saying, well, they'll start lowering rates. The Fed will, that is, uh, second into second quarter 2024. I love these predictions because oftentimes they're wrong. So <laughs> so stay tuned. We'll uh, uh, I'll keep sharing more information here uh, in the wealth management space here in just a bit. Testing, testing, one, two, testing, testing, one, two. So what's really interesting is I have uh, the yield curve pulled up uh, through my Schwab trading platform. And I just wanted to report to you guys based on today's data, I just printed it off and it's like August 14th here at 323 Eastern time. And um, the uh, if we take a look at US treasuries, the three month treasury note is trading at 5.451%. So that's a three-month T-bill trading at 5.45%. The six-month T-bill is trading at 5.48%. Nine-month is trading at 5.372. The one-year is trading at 5.34%. The two-year is trading at 4.96%. The three-year is trading at 4.589%. The five-year treasury note is trading at 4.32%. The 10-year note is trading at 4.16%. 20-year is at 4.46%, and the 30-year is trading at 4.277%. So who's buying these treasury notes that are long-dated? Probably insurance companies that uh, are offsetting that with uh, locking in those uh, returns 
over that long period of time um, and uh, managing their book well on the on the near term uh, uh, claims that come in. So they're and 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 also what they have to pay out in performance on the near term. So it's very interesting. Uh, looking at the treasuries, the three month, six month, nine month, one year, all trading above 5%. The two years where it go dips below 2%. So we still have an inverted yield curve. But uh, what's exciting is that you still are getting a, a legitimate amount of, of money and income off of those T-bills, which are guaranteed if you hold them to maturity. If we get a backup in rates, meaning rates go down, um, you're, you're going to have a little bit of appreciation in there. Uh, if you, if you decide to sell. So very interesting. And I have, uh, treasury zeros, government agencies, corporates, uh, from triple a down to single a munis from triple a down to single a, and then tax equivalent yield math. Uh, that's nice to look at as well as CD rates and CD rates, uh, uh, are look like they're kind of right below what the treasury rates are. Um, so it's very interesting. Hopefully the banks out there where you have your savings accounts earning more than nothing this time, uh, I hope that's the case. But if it's not, if it's not earning uh, somewhere in the fives, give me, <laughs> give us a call. We'll put money to work in a cash management strategy where we can buy treasuries and when they roll off, we re-up them. And, and with what I just talked about with Goldman Sachs saying that interest rates are they think by the end of second quarter are going to come down because the Fed's going to lower rates because of inflation and 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 a, a, a plethora of other reasons. But if that's the case, then uh, there's this thing called the duration trade and going longer and longer and longer out to lock in those higher rates on the longer duration bonds is probably what a lot of portfolio managers, if not have already done or working on doing, uh, and they're kind of trying to figure out uh, – uh, when in the timing of when the Fed's going to lower interest rates. And that's what uh, the great debate is right now, it seems, in the financial news and media and among the academics. And uh, and I also, speaking of academics, let's talk about the latest edition of the American Association of Individual Investors. I just got the latest article and a survey that I like to look at right away is the uh, sentiment survey. So stock market Sentiment indicators are contrarian. Usually low optimism is typically followed by above average returns and unusually high optimism is typically followed by below average returns. And so this data represents what direction members feel the stock market will be in the next six months. So this data was July 12th of 2023 and uh, the sentiment votes, the respondents, uh, 41% are bullish bullish. 33.1% are neutral and 25.9% are bearish. Isn't that interesting? Um, given that there's a lot of big time people out there that are pretty bearish uh, and, and hate this bull market that could be in the works right now. We don't know because of uh, we're not getting full confirmation from that. But look at these uh, readings just a week prior to that. So July 5th, 2023, 46.4% of respondents in the same survey were bullish, whereas 24.5% were bearish and the rest were neutral, which is around 29%. So uh, we started the year about 42.9%, uh, 40% bullish. So we're kind of right back to where we were at the beginning of the year, which is interesting when everybody said we'd have a recession in 2023. And um, 
the recession definition, this one, this playbook has been very interesting because we're in a rolling one, most likely one that's off and on in their segments that are bull markets. The stock market obviously is acting as though we're not in one, but, uh, you know, there's segments of the economy that have outages and others that don't. Um, so the historical average for the same sentiment survey is uh, 37.5% are bullish, 31.5% are neutral, and 31% is bearish. So uh, the, one, the one year bullish high is 46.4, which happened on July 5th of this year. The one year neutral high, uh, let's see, that ended uh, February 22nd, 2023. That was 39.9%. And the one year bearish high, bearish high, meaning the bears were at the top, which was 60.9% was the week ending September 21st of 2022. So that was the end of last year or or the the third quarter of last year. So what is the stock and stock fund allocation? June of 2023, 66% of of people in this uh, survey, which is a pretty reliable one, 66% stocks and stock funds. That's above average for the 37th consecutive month. And then uh, that means our bond and bond funds allocation is 14.1%. And the cash allocation is 19.8% uh, as of June. The historical average for that is 61.5% of folks are in stocks with 16% in bonds and bond funds, and then 22.5% in cash. And the cash positions have been below average for the seventh consecutive month. And then bond and bond funds below average for the 28th consecutive month. So uh, the American Association of Individual Investors, um, they certainly have not been that bearish. Uh, They've been a little more bullish. So um, it's interesting to see how that correlates with the market and the market is in line with their thinking. Interesting. Okay. Uh, there's another article I want to share with you that I came across. Vanguard's annual look at the performance of nearly 5 million defined contribution plan participants shows encouraging results. While overall participation rates are impressive, Vanguard suggests that participants should ideally save between 12 and 15% of their pay to meet their retirement objectives. Surprisingly, only about 20% of participants require a modest increase of just 1% to 3% in their savings rate to reach their target. One notable finding is that consistent increase in automatic enrollment over the past 15 years. By the end of 2022, 58% of plans had adopted autopilot components, including employee elective deferrals. The report also highlights improvements in participant portfolio construction. In 2022, 79% of participants adopted a balanced investment strategy. This indicates that participants are becoming more aware of the benefits of a diversified investment approach. Income played a significant role with lower participation rates observed among employees earning less than $15,000 compared to those earning over $150,000. Additionally, participation rates were lower among younger employees, while higher rates were observed among employees between the ages of 35 and 64. On average, Vanguard participants saved 7.4% of their income in their employer's plan. Furthermore, 16% of eligible participants utilized catch-up contributions in 2022, indicating a strong adoption of the feature allowing higher contributions for individuals aged 50 and older. 
In terms of asset allocation, a high percentage of plan assets in 2022 were invested in equities, with balanced strategies comprising a significant portion. On average, participants allocated 77% of their assets to equities or stocks. And so this, uh, this information came from How America Saves 2023. It was the 22nd edition of Vanguard in June 2023. I thought that was really an encouraging sign of people understanding uh, that an, an allocation to equities is the, is the place to be despite 2022's rough stock and bond market performance. They most likely stayed the course, stayed invested, and are still contributing. And they probably were contributing even when the market was down to those same asset allocation models. And so hopefully their portfolios have done quite well, uh, especially the weighting of technology and health sciences in uh, the indexes like the S&P and the, the NASDAQ inside those portfolios, inside those target date funds. And, um, and so, yeah, the trend of upward momentum continues. And, you know, perhaps we, we don't have a double top and perhaps um, we, we might get confirmation that we're actually officially out of a bear market. Um, and I'm going to go over some technical analysis here uh, in the next segment, talking about what a double top or double bottom is. Uh, but first, let's talk about how these members have responded to interest rate hikes. So a comparison of popular sources for portfolio income now compared to August of 2020 before rates begin to rise. So what that means is before interest rates went up uh, back in 2020 when COVID was going on, um, people had a different asset allocation model, I think, compared to now, because now we get treasuries at 5.4%, let's say. And so let's review what this article talks about in the American Association of Individual Investors. So the interest rate environment has changed significantly since we asked AAII members three years ago what they are doing to realize portfolio income. Many individual investors are relying on equities for portfolio income. That was the September 2020 AAII journal. The yield on the 10-year treasury note was 3.99% as of mid-July 2023. In August 2020, when we conducted the previous survey, the benchmark note yielded 0.69%. Jeez. The change in the six-month treasury bills has been even more dramatic, 5.55% now versus 0.12% in 2020. Given the big change in interest rates, we thought it would be interesting to see what AAII members are now doing for portfolio income. Dividends continue to be frequently used relative to 2020. Many more AAII members now are using bonds and money market funds as sources for generating portfolio income. You know what? Here at Northbound Wealth Management, we're doing the same thing. You know, so it's really brought back that asset class and a tool in our toolbox that we didn't have before. It's uh, it's really been a nice benefit for client portfolios. When asked in current higher interest rate environment, what are you doing to realize portfolio income? About one quarter or 26% of survey respondents said uh, investing in stocks as shown. And there's a figure here on this article, but bond and bond funds were cited by even more, 32% of respondents. Money market funds and money market accounts or certificates of deposits or CDs were listed by a combined 23% of respondents. 
Some respondents listed a combination of each. High-quality short-term bonds and bond mutual funds or bond exchange-traded funds are held by nearly two-thirds, 65% of respondents who shared the types of fixed-income investments they own. Three-quarters of all survey respondents. Uh, Intermediate-term bonds and bond funds that are held by 58% of respondents. Several uh, respondents talked about laddering bonds and or CDs, treasury inflation-protected securities tips, are utilized by just uh, 19% of respondents to this question. I would totally agree. We've been laddering uh, bond portfolios for a little while now so that we have uh, we reduce the roll-off risk of those individual securities rolling off, meaning they mature. So um, that changes things there. On the equity side, dividend stocks were popular choice. 95% of respondents to this question, 86% of all survey respondents Real estate investment trust or REITs were also popular investment option owned by 52%. Preferred stocks are owned by 24% and covered call options, a strategy used to realize income by selling call options on owned stocks were utilized by 19%. I have built a renewable maturity ladder of treasuries and CDs with 25% of my portfolio. So far, the ladder is built with securities up to two years in maturity. Another 20% of my portfolio is in money market funds, wrote AAII member Hill Williams. Dan Poulier described himself as an investing at a level three uh, accolade in reference to AAI founder James Clunan's 2016 book that advocated for a large allocation to stocks and a small allocation to defensive assets. I'm parking my three-year cash in a CD ladder stretching from three-month to 60-month maturities. I'm also selling covered calls on a portion of my equity holdings. Comparatively, about 18% of respondents to our 2020 survey said they were decreasing their allocation to bonds. Two out of five respondents, or 40%, said they would have a greater exposure to bonds if interest rates were higher back then. The big question survey is part of a periodic initiative to give AAII members a chance to talk about their investment decisions and challenges. Each survey asks what we're describing as a big question about a subject of interest to many individual investors. A randomly selected group of AAI members is asked a specific question as well as follow-up questions intended to provide more clarity and background. More than 260 AAII members responded to the last survey, which was conducted in July of 2023. So there you go. I'll end it there. Very, very good information, timely information, and hopefully you were educated through that process. And I've got more to educate you on and share with you about our industry and about what's going on in the wealth management business, as well as financial planning and finance and investing. So stay tuned. Hey, everybody, this is Brent Foster, and this is your Technical Analysis Spotlight. Uh, August 14th, I got a chart up pulled of the SPX or the S&P 500 Large Cap Index, and I'm utilizing stockcharts.com. I've got multiple studies here. Uh, I've got a weekly chart going back five years. Got the RSI, Relative Strength Indicator, MACD Indicator, Full Stochastics, the ADX or an Advanced Decline Line, and then the X. Uh, SPX weekly chart, um, the 50-day moving average, the 200-day moving average with volume, and then candlesticks. And what I'm looking at is this longer-term chart over five years. 
And what it shows is that the October low in 2022 was a bottom or a trough. And that's between two or hot, two higher points. It was the previous all-time high uh, in the 4,800 range of the S&P 500. And then we just hit around the 4,600 range in the S&P 500. So you've, if you think about it, you have a high with a low and then another high. And so that signifies um, potentially a double top if we don't break out above the previous all-time high, uh, which will hopefully give us confirmation of uh, a new bull market rather than in a bear market. And so uh, price doesn't lie. It tells you what the market collectively is thinking. So we got to respect that. Um, so we'll see what happens over the next few months here. Uh, but between now and I think maybe next year, first quarter, potentially into the second quarter, things look uh, fairly good as far as price, especially if we hold certain confluence levels of support above the recent lows that we made in last October and then a low that we made in uh, March. And then we're kind of having a consolidation pattern, a, a collection, if you will, uh, before potentially pressing a, a little bit higher and trying to make a run at that all-time high that was made at the very end of 2021, the beginning of 22, before we had just a, a brutal 2022 of selling, both in the stock and the bond market. So speaking of double top versus a double bottom, I wanted to go over uh, what that actually means. I pulled definitions of, of a double top versus a double bottom. It was written by uh, James Chen, a CMT or certified market technician. He's an expert trader, investment advisor, and global market strategist. Uh, he wrote this. It was reviewed by Charles Potters and fact-checked uh, by somebody there May 8th of 2023. So it's pretty recent as far as writing uh, educationally about what a double top is versus a double bottom. So following an uptrend, a double top is a bearish reversal pattern that develops. It comprises of two almost equal sized peaks that are close to one another in height separated by a trough. That's what I just described to you uh, about where the S&P 500 is right now. A potential trend reversal is indicated by the pattern, which shows that the price has reached a resistance level twice, but been unable to break past it. This pattern is frequently seen by traders as a signal to sell or enter short positions, mean, meaning betting that the market goes down in anticipation of additional market declines. So do you hear that? That means if we don't break out or, or get past that all-time high, then we could potentially have uh, a, a sell-off. Uh, but that's not to put anyone at fear because we'll talk about the other side of that. Nearly the opposite situation is a double bottom following a downtrend, which we were in. Uh, a double bottom is a bullish reversal pattern. So I didn't talk about that, but that's kind of happened as well. It consists of a peak in the middle of two almost equal depth troughs that follow one another. The pattern indicates that the price found resistance at a particular level and was unable to break below it. In many ways, a double top looks very similar to a double bottom with the exception of the peaks. A double top results in consecutive highs 
while a double bottom results in consecutive bottoms or lows. Be mindful that double tops may send false signals. Even the most clear pattern may break opposite of how it normally does. So how to identify a double top? There are several key steps in identifying a double top. Be mindful that every instance of a double top may be slightly different and false signals may lead investors to believe a double top is forming when in reality it isn't. Generally speaking, here are the steps to identify a double top. Number one, look for an upswing. The price movement should be clearly in a uptrend prior to the creation of a double top. This indicates that the price has been making continuously higher highs and higher lows. Number two, find the initial peak. Determine the uptrend's first peak. The price has now risen to its maximum level before beginning to fall. Number three, find the trough. Following the initial peak, the price will briefly fall. Find the valley or trough that develops following that initial peak. Number four, find the second peak. The price will then rise once more in an effort to hit a new high but the second rally will fall short of the first peak's height and begin to collapse once more. Number five, verify the pattern. That's where we're at now, verifying. To verify a double top pattern, make sure the decline that follows the second peak is lower than the trough that follows the first peak. This demonstrates that the previous resistance level was not successfully overcome by the price. Number six, draw the neckline. This is done by connecting the low points of the two troughs with a horizontal line, which is called the neckline. This denotes a level of support is this line. It serves as an essential pattern reference. Number seven, verify double top pattern. So to verify the double top pattern, watch for a price below the neckline. Breaking below the neckline might be interpreted as a sell signal because it portends a potential trend reversal. Here are the key elements of a double top. As you identify double top formations, consider the following key elements. Number one, uptrend. The price should clearly be moving upward before the pattern forms, as seen by higher highs and higher lows. That's actually happened in the S&P 500 this year. Two peaks. The pattern consists of two peaks that roughly correspond to one another in terms of price. These peaks serve as resistance levels where the price stalls and begins to fall. Uh, number three, trough or valley. A trough or valley has formed between the two peaks. That's happened. This denotes a brief period of price decline or consolidation. The neckline. The neckline is a horizontal line that's created by joining the valley or the trough low points. This serves as a degree of support and is essential for confirming the pattern. And number six, net, uh, the break of the neckline. So the break of the neckline is a key component of a double top pattern. And the price drops below the neckline, suggesting a potential trend reversal. The pattern is verified. Volume. Volume can add to our understanding of the pattern. Volume often increases when price breaks below the neckline and decreases throughout the creation of the two peaks. The validity of the pattern may be strengthened by the rise in volume on the breakdown. And uh, finally, we've got price goal. After the breakdown, project this distance downward from the neckline. This can offer a rough point of reference for the price decline. The time period between peaks may vary. One double top may have a week be between peaks, while another double top may play out over months. 
So how do you trade it? How to trade the double top. There are three primary ways to trade a double top. First, you can wait for the price to cross below the neckline, which would confirm the double top pattern and perhaps signal a trend reversal. You can start a short trade or sell position after the break happens. To reduce risk, think about placing a stop loss order above the most recent swing high. You can also project the vertical distance between the neckline and the highest peak downward from the neckline to determine your profit target. Second, after the neckline is first broken, the price may occasionally retest it from below before continuing its downward movement. As part of this technique, you watch for a price break below the neckline, wait for a retreat to the neckline, and then search for a bearish confirmation signal such as a bearish candlestick pattern, a trend line break, or a lower high. To place a short trade, which if you're if you're a novice investor, you're not short trading. These are just for professional investors on the short trade. A profit target can be established using a variety of techniques, including projecting the pattern's height downward or locating probable support levels. The stop loss can be set above the most recent swing high. Third, you can use extra technical indicators or oscillators to make the double top pattern more reliable. For instance, you can check bearish divergence on the moving average convergence, divergence, or MACD histogram, or the relative strength index, or the RSI, when the indicators display lower highs as the price develops the uh, the two peaks. Following the stop loss and profit target criteria described above, you can place a short trade once the neckline is broken when the indicators confirm the bearish signal. So I use uh, multiple forms of study, relative strength, MACD, the full stochastics, um, all of that type of stuff, ADX, uh, to kind of, um, figure out what to do there, but I I don't do any shorting. Um, I'm basically doing asset allocation, uh, and traditional trading, um, around, uh, the equity and bond markets and, and, uh, the private markets, things like that. So, um, there you go. Double top definition patterns using, used in trading and it's double top versus double bottom there you have it hello everyone this is brent foster and i wanted to go over the 2023 charles schwab modern wealth survey i think this has quite a bit of helpful information in it and observations about the wealth management business and industry and and about clients and about you guys uh, that are out there uh, as investors so let's dive in Uh, Charles Schwab, Modern Wealth Survey 2023 results. So here's the methodology. The Modern Wealth Survey is an online study conducted for Charles Schwab by Logica Research. Logica Research is neither affiliated with nor employed by Charles Schwab and Co. Incorporated. The online study was conducted from March 1st to March 13th, 2023 among a national sample of Americans aged 21 to 75. So a thousand adults completed the survey, a thousand adults nationally, that is representative of the U.S. population. Adults had to be 21 to 75 to qualify and 200 additional Gen Z uh, folks completed the survey. So general definitions, Gen Z is defined as being being born between uh, 1997 and 2001. So that's ages 21 to 25. Millennials 
of respondents said that. So let's see what the highest grouping was of that or breakdown. So Gen Z was 42%, millennials 44, Gen X uh, 41, and boomers 33. So millennials taking that one. So having more money, obviously it says a lot. Okay. So about a third of Americans have a documented financial plan. So one third of Americans have some sort of documented financial plan and those who have one feel more in control of their finances. Well, yeah, it's most like goals. If you write them down, if you have a budget, if you plan for things, then you feel like you're more in control of them Um, and you execute better. That's the key. So financial planning, 65% have no formal financial plan. 40% have thought a bit about financial goals, but still need to document them in a formal plan. So that's 40%. 26% don't have a financial plan of any kind. Interesting. So on the other side, 35% of determined financial goals have documented them in a formal plan. 92% feel confident that they'll reach their financial goals. And uh, of that group, 70% feel more in control of their finances. And uh, 28% the same, 2% less in control of their finances. So it's obvious that if you... Uh, have a documented financial plan and you update it on a periodic and consistent enough basis frequency wise that you'll feel more in control and feel like you have an idea of where the heck you're going. Not having enough money and perceived complication of financial plans are the biggest barriers to having a financial plan. If you don't have a financial plan, please call us Northbound Wealth Management. We'd be happy to go through a process with you that helps you gain a little more clarity and understanding about where you are and where you're going and where you need to be. So uh, reach out to us. We'd be happy to have a conversation. Um, Let's see. Barriers to financial planning. Don't have enough money to even need a plan. That says 44%. So that's interesting. Uh, Gen Z, 38%. Millennials, 38%. Gen X, 48%. And boomers, 52%. Um, Naturally, you would see the higher Uh, percentage allocated to the boomers of that group. Um, 21% seems too complicated to create a plan. And the the highest group of that was the millennial group at 20, well, no, the, excuse me, the Gen Z group at 28% and millennials at 26. So we've got uh, 20% don't have enough time to develop one. So just don't have enough time. And uh, obviously, 29% of Gen Z say that, 29% of millennials, 18% of Xers, and boomers say 9%. They've got more time on their hands. Haven't had a major life event that meant requiring a plan, 18%. So of that, Gen Z, uh, 29%, 19% of millennials, 14% of Gen X, and 15% of baby boomers. Probably too expensive to get help. Creating a plan, says 17% of the entire group. Of that, 23% of Gen Z, 24% of millennials, 16% of Gen X, and 9% of boomers. So Americans value their relationship with family and friends, but how they compare to family and friends impacts how wealthy they feel. Well, there you go. That's the old one. That's an old one. Uh, What I mean by that is, you know, there's greed and what's worse than greed? Envy, envy, um, keeping up with the Joneses. So again, Americans value their relationships with family and friends, but how they compare 
to family and friends impacts how wealthy they feel. Whew. Being able to afford a similar lifestyle as my friends makes me feel wealthy, says 47%. And the highest, the highest grouping is Gen Z and millennials. And then at uh, 61% each, and then Gen X 39, and then Boomers 31. So the older you get, the more you understand that it doesn't matter. And it less impacts how you feel about your own wealth. Okay, the other half, like the other part of that is 37%. I compare my lifestyle to my families and friends on social media. Number one, stop doing that. Your identity is not in any of that stuff. It's crazy. Your identity is someplace else. If you want advice on that, come talk to me. Um, All right, Gen Z, 54% of that. Millennials, 47%. Gen X, 31%. And Boomers, 13%. Americans use social media to see how others around them um, are doing, but also use it for financial advice. Good to use for financial advice, potentially, if you seek out reputable and credible sources that have been in the industry a while to share with you. But um, but comparing yourself is not good and it, it doesn't really help. Uh, so uh, let's see here. What stands out? I follow influencers who share financial advice on social media, says 43%. Um, I find that my views of wealth are influenced by what people post on social media, 38%. I make purchases based on what I see my friends and other influencers share on social media, 34%. I make investment decisions based on what I see my friends and other influencers share on social media. I make my financial decisions based on what I see my friends and others. And I like to share about my financial successes. So all of those are 33 and 34%. Um, across the board. So what kind of stands out is a lot of the higher percentages are allocated to Gen Z, millennials, then X, and then uh, boomers. So uh, make note, Gen Z, millennials, Xers, if you're not a boomer, basically go talk to a boomer and find out what they think about and how much they care about social media and others and what they post on social media in comparisons and all of that type of stuff. Demographic uh, snapshot. So the gender split was male 46%, female 53%. Investable assets. Uh, the, the mean was 361,000. The median of the sample size was 75,000. Uh, the generations represented was uh, Gen Z at 13%, millennials at 34%, Gen Xers at 28 and boomers at 25. And remember, they did add a, a, add more millennials to get a, a little bit of an understanding of where they're at. Uh, so household income, the mean household income was 93,000 and the median household was 68,000. Uh, employment, working full-time, 53%. Working part-time, 12%. Retired, 18%. And others, 17% of that group of the sample size. So... Again, a national sample of 1,000 Americans aged 21 to 75, an additional 200 Gen Z Americans completed the studies, and quotas were set to balance the national sample on key demographic variables. So it wasn't just slanted to one or another as far as demographics is concerned. So there you go. Hopefully you've gathered or gleaned something from this, and that'll wrap it up for this week's The Northbound Wealth Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Like, subscribe. Got to give us the likes and subscribes. Keep us going. 
We're on YouTube. We're on Apple. We're on Spotify. We're on anywhere you listen. Uh, please follow us. We'd love to have you, talk to you, interact with you in social media platforms everywhere. Have a great week and weekend. We'll talk to you soon.